Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm host Anthony. This week, Nicholas Carol Parrish Jameson helps me cover the Battle of Whispering Wood. We talk about Kat and Rob and Jamie and a little bit of Tyrion too. Also, if you've ever wondered how do knights urinate, this is the episode for you. In my bird's eye view section, I include a short excerpt of my conversation with Steve Osborne from Perfect Stranger Things. This is us covering the first episode of season four. Steve and I are having a ton of fun doing it. And I don't mind saying that that particular podcast is an opportunity for both Steve and I to talk more autobiographically than we do in this podcast. But don't take my word for it. Here is an endorsement from my daughter, Nessa. Listen to Perfect Stranger Things. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Without further ado, here is medievalist Carol Parrish. Jameson. I was just texting my sister Tara, <laughs> and I said, I'm about to interview an expert on medieval knights. Uh, do you have any questions for her? And so she came up with a question just on the spot. And I wonder oh boy. if we could okay. just try you with this question. Okay. Tara writes, how does one pee in a suit of armor? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll be honest. I never considered. I never considered this before. But now I really want to know. And in depictions, you know, of, of in movies and such, in depictions, they they don't cover that part of it, of course, at all. In um, you know, on the battlefield, especially early on, normally they were wearing chain mail, and so it would be, you know, that they wouldn't be in the full plate armor. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, plate armor was really because it was impractical it was heavy uh, so it was really reserved more for like jousting and that kind of thing sure. and I, I don't think you could pee in it okay all right. <laughs> so all right no that's this is good for me to know so um when i've seen men wearing like a cod piece mm -hmm. was that more decorative than anything else then I think that was more for, I think that was for protection, much like the cup that baseball players wear. Right. But I might be wrong. I am not an expert on the cod piece, Anthony. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we will uh, relay this to Tara and uh, see if this uh, satisfies her query. Then. No, I, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. So uh, today we're covering Catelyn's 10th POV chapter. And I think that uh, many fans will recognize this as the the famous Battle of Whispering Woods. Carol, I'll just go ahead and read my synopsis and we can jump right in. Sure. Okay. Catelyn, along with the bulk of Rob's army, is waiting in the woods. 
The plan is for a group of raiders to draw Jamie Lannister out from his siege at River Run, isolate his army, and capture him. Cat waits and waits and remembers all of the times she's waited for men to return in her life. She observes that Rob has become a naturally gifted lord, but she worries over him nonetheless and steels herself against the harsh realities of battle. Finally, she catches a glimpse of Jamie and his men. Indeed, as her uncle promised, Jamie Lannister has been drawn out into the wood unsuspecting. The battle begins. Although Cat hears it, she doesn't see much of it as it is obscured by the trees. But at the end of it, Rob returns victorious with Jamie as a hostage. Cat shares a brief conversation with Jamie before he is locked and guarded. Theon wants to revel in the win, but Cat and Rob stoically look forward to retaking River Run. So, Carol Parrish Jameson, what do you want to talk about? Well, I have a couple of things that I definitely want us to touch on. I am just coming off teaching a class on Beowulf and medievalism. Mm. And I know that you've had you've had a discussion already on your show about um, Catelyn and the role of women. But but I think that this chapter also contributes to that discussion. Mm, so good. I'd like to continue there a little bit. And then I'd like to talk about... Um, this battle and, and the really interesting perspective that we're getting um, of this battle is so different from the battle scene that we got in the previous chapter because it's all from, yeah, from Catelyn's um, observation. This is a very different, again, obscured view of the battle. Really, we hear a lot of the battle. We don't mm-hmm. see a lot of the battle. So, yeah, I'm interested. I mean, both in sort of what Cat brings to the story, but also how she... In- how she experiences this part of medieval life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it opens up, I'm thinking about, uh, it struck me how she's waiting. And this is a chapter, you know, about waiting. And so what came to mind for me was just this image of the, the waiting woman really in medieval, uh, in, in, you know, the middle ages and medieval literature and, uh, and beyond. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking in Anglo-Saxon uh, poetry of the wife's lament. It's this very esoteric poem, but it's pretty clear that the wife is waiting uh, on her husband. Um, we can jump ahead to Chaucer with the Franklin's Tale, where uh, where Dorigen, the uh, a lady, is waiting for her husband, and she's so afraid that when mm. he comes home, he'll get shattered by the rocks that wait in the bay. Um, and then, you know, I'm from Savannah, and and that's another thing that got me thinking about waiting women. There is a statue here uh, on the river called the Waving Girl Statue. And the story is uh, that apparently this woman would just stand and, and wave to sailors. But there is another legend that she was waiting on her lover to come back uh, from war. Mm. So <laughs> one so just, is much more romantic than the other. <laughs> exactly. And I think the, the, the one that she just liked to wave that <laughs> is probably the, the true one. But yeah. more plausible. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I'm, um, I was also it brought to mind. um historical character um have you heard of edith of the swan's neck no what a great name isn't that a great name yeah Um, she was the mistress of um of uh, Harold I of England. And the legend is that during the Norman conquest, she and Harold's mother um, waited and and listened to the battle uh, from a distance. Mm. And then afterwards, I don't know whether this is, I think this is probably more folklore than fact, but it's also a great story. Uh, Afterwards, she had to identify uh, Harold's body. 
he was so mutilated. Mm, mm. Yeah. So again, just that image of, of waiting women and though Catelyn in this case is not like she's not waiting at home. She's like waiting right there right. on the battlefield. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that because <laughs> she has she really does have a unique perspective on this. It's mm-hmm. from the ancient world and I would imagine bleeding into the medieval world, there is an idea of domestic space being feminine space, right? Right, yeah. So for a woman, even a high lady to actually be on the battlefield and have any kind of view of the workings of war would be would be unique, wouldn't it? It would. Um, George R. R. Martin, in um, one of the interviews that he gave, compared Catelyn to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who who actually mm. you know um, was something of a uh, military advisor and who apparently led some troops into the Second Crusade. And so I think Catelyn is is maybe ultimately more in that vein, even though we do see her here at this point waiting. <laughs> right, right. Well, all right, I, I did want to save this for later, but maybe I'll ask you this now. So we meet a character named Daisy Mormont. Yes. <laughs> and she's described as this you know, live woman of six feet and Mm -hmm. able to wield a a morning star. And, you know, some of the men grumble, like, why is she on the battlefields? You know, in other words, she's an aberration, but but she is going to fight. She does fight. She is. Mm -hmm. And totally not in the show at all, but I think in some way an inspiration for Liana Mormont. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess the question is, like, I mean, we have characters like Joan of Arc. Is this a work of complete fiction, or do we have a, a few precedents for, uh, you know, women on the battlefields during this yeah, it's It's definitely an anomaly. It's, it's definitely the exception, um, you know, rather than the rule. But, you know, it, um, it was possible. Uh, it is interesting the men balking about about Daisy Mormont, but Catelyn doesn't care. She has she has a mission. Mm-hmm. She's there, you know, as a strategist. Um, but you know, and certainly in the in the literary world, it's very unusual that you see um, a woman in battle. There's one romance called um, Silence, Silence, and it's about a woman who disguises herself as a man so she can keep her inheritance and she's right. able to go out and fight. Sure. Uh, but yeah, but it is, it isn't typically the the woman's domain is, you know, waiting. Yeah, it's more domestic. And I do think that Kat's advocacy for this, I guess we, we really can't call her a knight, but um, mm-hmm. this female knight is a foreshadowing of her eventual relationship for Brienne. Yes. Right? I mean, because you could imagine that most highborn folk, well, most folk in general, are going to defend the traditional gender norms. Mm-hmm. Um, so so interesting that Kat seems to uh, be an advocate here. Um, that seems to be in keeping with what we find out about her later. Yes, yes. And she is, um, you know, she has a mission here. Her mission is the survival of her son and, you know, and getting her family back mm-hmm. together. Uh, and I think she's going to achieve that mission however she sees fit. And here is someone that she knows is a very capable warrior, female, male. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, uh, she she's out to to reunite her family and to win this battle. Right. Um, 
Let me read just a little bit of the book here because what's great about this chapter is the detailed depiction of what Cat hears. And I uh, wasn't able to capture it in my summary, so I'll just read this, uh, this portion. Afterward, she could not claim she had seen the battle. Yet she could hear, and the valley rang with echoes. The crack of the broken lance, the clash of swords, the cries of Lannister and Winterfell, and Tully, River Run and Tully. When she realized there was no more to see, she closed her eyes and listened. The battle came alive around her. She heard hoofbeats, iron boots splashing in shallow water, the woody sound of swords on oaken shields, and the scrape of steel against steel, the hiss of arrows, and the thunder of drums, and the terrified screaming of a thousand horses. Men shouted curses and begged for mercy, and got it or not and lived or died. The ridges seemed to play queer tricks with sound. Once she heard Rob's voice, clear as if he had been standing at her side, calling, to me, to me. And she heard his direwolf snarling and growling, heard the snap of those long teeth and the tearing of flesh, shrieks of fear and pain from man and horse alike. Was there only one wolf? It was hard to be certain. Little by little, the sound dwindled and died, until at last there was only the one wolf. As a red dawn broke in the east, gray wind began to howl again. So I thought it was an interesting, it's an interesting way to depict a battle. It is, yeah. I think it's beautifully written, though. The imagery and yeah. and in the text, the way that he uses italics um, here, here, here to kind of mm-hmm. emphasize um, some of the points that uh, that she's hearing. Um, but yeah, I, I find it just really gripping. It's almost like a, a horror movie. And sometimes the things that you can't see are the things that are scariest, right. the things that are implied. Yes. Absolutely, that's true. And I think that by choosing to focus on just the sounds of battle, it's a very clever way to focus on a particular aspect of warfare. And yeah, I absolutely appreciated it. Uh, You don't see it a lot. We don't get a lot of this in this book. You really don't. And again, especially coming off that previous chapter where we are just in the thick of the battle with, you know, with Tyrion and, you know, just seeing, you know, everything up close and so graphically. And here, (laughs) here again, it's just uh, the the noises and there's so ominous to Uh me, you know, the whole they're having to whisper the whole the quietness of the woods and um, the birds, the the, uh, snow shrikes um, in the moments before we started talking, I did something someone should do in those moments before i went down the rabbit hole of looking up shrikes uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> because sure. i didn't know they were real birds did you know that oh no i did not i thought that they were invented for the for this story yeah it um because i was thinking about in anglo-saxon poetry particularly the the uh, in poems like the battle of uh of malden and the finsburg fragment and and other works that depict war there are always you know animals of prey and especially mm-hmm. birds are depicted and so that i think she hears the the shrikes at one point and what i found is that they are carnivorous birds and their name means butcher and it comes from uh again a, a, a folkloric narrative oh, about them yeah yeah that apparently they um uh, they're called butcher birds. Interesting. Now, I read that a little differently. Okay, how did you read that? So, I read that as these are northern birds mm-hmm. that you would only hear up north. 
and be ah. and the northern armies are using that particular bird call to alert everyone else that well could be yeah that, that the that the Lannisters have been spotted and they're on their way mm-hmm. you know she hears it four times and then immediately right. she's told you know they're here so, I would bet that's right. Yeah. So I thought now now the text doesn't do that work for me. I kind of have to mm-hmm. supply supply that. That was some good supplying. <laughs> <laughs> but I I did think um it's kind of a clever way to and I didn't know that whole thing about the butchers thing, but mm-hmm. it's a clever way to say, well who are the the butcher birds in this story? It's the northern yeah. Ar- it's the northern warriors. They're about to butcher. Mhm the Lannister forces. Right. And this really plays out the whole notion of this, um, what comes to be known as Battle of the Whispering Woods, because they are trying to be very, very quiet. That's why, you know, the sounds that Mm -hmm. she hears are, um, you know, before the battle begins, you know, the clinking of the chain mail and such. So they need some way to communicate without giving themselves away. Yeah. How Um, do you keep an army of, you know, 18,000 quiet? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess I mean, the, the, the horses are going <laughs> to snort and the horses are going to mm-hmm. disturb the ground below them. And so, um, yeah, so everyone's whispering, but that's as much as you could hope to keep silent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned, and this is a little bit of a, a rewind here, but I, I wanted to ask you, in the previous chapter, which you mentioned Tyrion, there's this episode where he's on the battlefield and there is a a northern knight mm-hmm. who, or Tyrion identifies him as a knight, who recognizes Tyrion and says, you know, do you yield? Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, is in terms of chivalry, is it is that is that a strategic move or is that a, a sort of a move of honor? Um, yeah, it can be both. You, one should all, you know, one should show mercy on the battlefield, number one. But, um, but, uh, secondly, you know, I, I, um, you would recognize Tyrion. There probably aren't many dwarfs. And so it's quite possible that they also realize that this is someone who could be much more valuable to them as a captive, right? um, just as happens with, uh, with Jamie. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense with Tyrion, but I guess I'm just wondering in general, Let's say this this code defines the night, right? Mm-hmm, but right. is there a part of the code that that is very detailed about how one demonstrates chivalry on the battlefield? Yeah, there there uh, there definitely are rules of battle. If someone asks for mercy, uh, then mm. one should always show mercy. In this case, I don't I don't recall Tyr- no, Tyrion isn't going to ask for mercy. <laughs> no, so, he, uh, no, he he decides to no put way. his spike into the horse's belly, right, you know? and ends up yeah, ends up uh, defeating the guy. Right. Um. So so in that situation, he uh, he did not maybe simply because he recognizes that Tyrion it, that it's not fair that he has an unfair advantage over Tyrion uh-huh. by size, and maybe he's being chivalric and you know recognizing that this would not be fair. And so yeah. he's offering him mercy. Maybe he recognizes that he's a Lannister. Sure. Bringing this back to the chapter that we're looking at now, mm-hmm. Theon is an interesting voice in Rob's ear. Yes. <laughs> um, he, well, in addition to sort of taking a, a, maybe a little bit too much pleasure 
in this, <laughs> horrific, this horrific battle. He also wants to just behead Jamie Lannister. He does, yeah. And, of course, Rob says, of course, you know, my father would never do something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So he's really listening to the voice of his father in his head. But it makes me wonder about Theon. Either he's foolish or he's looking out for his own interests. Like, maybe, like, I, I did wonder in this chapter, does he want Rob to sue for peace here and use the hostages to sort of avert war? Or is Theon the kind of guy who is sort of goading Rob into making a poor decision? I think it's the latter. I think Theon is definitely guilty of, of, of overmode, excessive pride. He, he's, he thinks in the moment um, and he, uh, he's arrogant and I don't think he strategizes. Uh, yeah. And of course, Martin's setting him up for this huge fall. So, <laughs> so that, you know, sure. he p- portrays him, you know, the arrogance is built to this crescendo. Uh-huh. And when he falls, boy, does he fall. But yeah, Theon, to me, um, I don't see a lot of thought or strategy at all. He's just in that moment of the battle, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and in that moment of, of, of glory. And he does, he just almost seems to be egging things on. Mm-hmm. Because capturing Jamie is sort of a step toward peace from one perspective. Right. You're thinking, yeah. we've got one of you, we've got a, a really valuable hostage of yours. You, clearly, you have the Lord of Winterfell. Uh, maybe we tr- maybe we make this trade and uh, and we go our merry way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe Theon is actually strategizing and thinking, no, it's better for me if this war continues. The, the more this war continues, the better my prospects for the future will be. Uh, you know, in other words, maybe he's sort of trying to sow the seeds of chaos in a way that maybe Littlefinger would. But maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I don't give him that much credit. It's possible, <laughs> but <laughs> just maybe the right. other knee-jerk reactions that we that we see him having uh-huh. um, throughout the course of the narrative sometimes are good, right? He uh-huh. saves Bran early on by, by sure. that kind of a knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to know about, uh, I, I'm assuming you want to bring this to Beowulf and maybe some of the female characters of Beowulf? Yeah, yeah. Let's return then. Um, to Catelyn, because when she's sitting there waiting, um, what's running through her head are all of her roles, right? All of the roles that mm. she's had um, as a female in this society. And mm. they do, uh, they really do parallel the, the roles that you see in Beowulf. Um, and again, well, um, I know that you went over a lot of these in a, in a previous podcast. It was fascinating, but I do think there's some things that, that this chapter adds to it. Yeah, so she, absolutely. Yeah. She starts, you know, thinking about her father, her role as a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, you, you get married and you, you are supposed to then, you know, you go with your husband's family, but she's a Tully and the Tullys, isn't it? Is it family, duty, honor? Yeah, sure. Family. And she, you know, she uh, is very devoted to her father and remains very devoted. So she's sitting here waiting and thinking about all of her roles. That's the first role that comes to mind is that role of daughter and waiting on her father. I mean, it's an odd thing for a father just to say that to a kid. Yeah, it seems kind of cruel. You know, wait, <laughs> wait kid. for me. You know, look out, look out your window until I return, and wait for me. It, it's and there's the, no guarantee, right? In this kind of a society, yeah, that she you're could be come waiting home. forever, mm-hmm. or who knows how long you're going to be gone? You could be gone for months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's a little bit, uh, 
that would oh. de definitely mess with your head <laughs> if you were a little kid in that situation. And maybe that's kind of shows you how how little someone like Hoster Tully even you know even imagines himself in the shoes of a little girl, right? Yeah, right. I think yeah that, that if he were being considerate of what it's really like for that child waiting on her father, he mm -hmm. wouldn't have said that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then she goes from there to her to her role as as a peace weaver, her betrothal to Brendan Stark, and then she has to marry the younger brother. Um, so that that role of peace weaver uh, comes up. Um, and remind me again, if for people who haven't didn't hear that previous podcast, it, it, what is a peace weaver? A peace weaver is a woman who is basically married off in an exchange, um, uh, oftentimes with like an enemy or a potential enemy or someone that a family might want to uh, become allies mm -hmm. with in order to seal peace, in order to ensure peace. So by marrying into the Stark family, that, it, that would help ensure an alliance between the Tullys and the Starks. Right. Okay. And that is why she uh, she is um, married off to the younger brother to Ned when uh, when Brendan dies, so sure. that they can keep that alliance. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So then she reflects back on how she was supposed to marry Brandon Stark, mm -hmm. and of course, you know, he promised he'd be right back, and he never came back, and she ends up right. Yeah, uh, sort of marrying his brother as as the stand-in, and she waited on her dad all that time, and he always came back. So that had to be kind of hard to take that this one didn't come back. Yeah, right. So yeah, so then she's married off to um, to the younger brother, and he comes back, but he comes back with a strange baby. So. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. And she also remembers to her birthing bed, right? Mm -hmm. and she, she does. She thinks, okay, well, at least Ned left me something before he he rode off to war here he is before me mm -hmm. you know and he does he's anything but a baby now but he she absolutely can't look at him and not think about him as a baby this is such a chapter about motherhood yeah right. <laughs> yeah and I, I i think I, I can so relate to it in that way her um her role here is mother and she's trying to um and now she's waiting on her son and that's that's a you know, an altogether different kind of waiting. You know, she's sitting here watching her son. And then when he goes off into the battle, she doesn't know if he'll be back or not. Um, she doesn't know about the safety of her daughters. Yeah. She's, she's got um, a son that, uh, that is injured. So she's in a, in a pretty bad situation here. Um, but yeah, I think Martin does such a good job of describing the angst that she feels here as a, as a mother. I think the prayer that she says is every mother's prayer, let him live, let him live to see 25, 30. Right. Yeah. And I also relate, you know, when she talks about that transformation uh, about she sees him without his helmet on, and then he puts the helmet on and suddenly, you know, he's a man, he's a knight. Oh, he's a knight. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, she's all the, it's like this otherworldly transformation. Yeah. And I, um, I personally relate to that because I have a child who attended a military academy Oh. and you take your child, she, uh, she was 17 and you drop them off. And yeah, I dropped off a, a 17 year old little girl in a t-shirt and shorts and they invite you back the next day. Um, you know, when the, um, the basic training begins, but the next day you watch them all march out onto the field and they come out in full armor and, and you just are like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what's happened? 
yeah, some kind of transformation happens, so, right? Yeah, that you're not ready for. Yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. think you can ever be ready uh, to see that kind of transformation. She's seen Rob train all his life, right, mm-hmm. to, um, uh, you know, to become a warrior of sorts. But I think it's that moment where she sees him without the helmet, with, the, you know, his hair, that the face she loves so much, and then he puts the helmet on, and um, it's just, it's like this automatic transformation in her mind. Right. So, so connecting to, um, to Beowulf, um, I was, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to make sure that people knew that the previous podcast that we were talking about was with Chris Swank. Right, yes. And Chris has written a, an essay called The Peace Weavers of Winterfell mm-hmm. in a book called Queenship and the Women of Westeros. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to call that out. People wanted to try to look for that previous podcast. Yeah, it is an excellent podcast and an, and an excellent article. So let's say, imagine us adding on to some of the insights that Chris had. Mm -hmm. What made you think of Beowulf when you were reading this chapter? Um, looking at all the different roles that, um, that Catelyn assumes from peace weaver Mm. to being, uh, to being a mother, to being what she becomes, um, Later on, when she transforms into um, Lady Stoneheart. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so she... (laughs) I forgot forgot about the Lady Stoneheart transformation. Yeah. Yeah, Because I was thinking, of course... Yes, she becomes a monster, right? She does. So. And in Beowulf, you see there's a lot about mothers and sons. Um, you know, you see um, mothers concerned for their sons. I think that that's one way in Anglo-Saxon society yeah. that a female could have power is through her sons, especially if she's a noble uh, a noble woman. And, um, and Grendel's mother um, seeks vengeance on behalf of of, of course, her son. Sure. Yeah, her and son. eventually this is what will happen with Kat. She will yeah. become a vengeance, a revenge monster. Yeah. You know, but I um, I would almost argue that there's something in Catelyn that's a little bit cold-hearted that I can understand a mother's vengeance, but I think there's something else in her that kind of justifies the title Stoneheart. And, and I don't mm-hmm. know, I might be mm-hmm. in the minority for thinking this. Um, I don't think so. I think there are a couple hints in this in this first book mm-hmm. that are like a cold hand grabbed her heart. Right. Or, yeah. You know, her heart. Her heart felt as cold as stone, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Usually, this happens when she's imagining mm-hmm. the men who have killed because of choices she's made. Yes. Yeah. She because she does end up making. Uh, some bad choices um, I'm thinking of that and also you know she's a loving mother to her own children but she's a wicked stepmother too <laughs> something we don't see in Beowulf but <laughs> yeah she is uh, there's I don't know kind of a um, a little bit of a cold-heartedness there and is it um in the series don't they they let her have a moment of regret for her treatment of Jon Snow yeah, and she reflects. She reflects to in the in the show. She's named Talisa, but she fo- mm-hmm. she reflects to Talisa that she was horrible to John, and and that uh, she, you know maybe the gods are punishing her for her inability to keep her promise that she will treat John as you know in in a way that a mother would treat a son. Mm-hmm. Not in the books. Not in the books at all. There's <laughs> no. no there's no remorse. In that way, she doesn't attempt to to be a peace weaver at mm-hmm. least within her own family she in fact kind of sows mm-hmm. discord well and i was thinking i think early on uh i had a guest 
named Stephanie Barbie Hammer, and she was pointing out to me that in the works of Shakespeare, you'll often have these bastards who were a threat to the family. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, and, and so I almost feel like maybe that's how Kat views Jon Snow. Like, he's, maybe yeah. he's not a threat yet. Right. This is a fly in the ointment. And it is. And the fact that Ned will not identify the mother, the yeah. fact that, that, that they're so close in age, um, she would have a right. Yeah, she w- I, I can understand that that would be a fear for her, that this child might become Ned's favorite, that Ned might choose this child as uh-huh. heir over her own. Or her other, let's say, imagine her other sons die, which which mm-hmm. happens, right? So, right, yeah. And then John becomes the only, if John becomes the only living you know, son of Ned Stark, mm-hmm. Ned, and Ned decides to legitimize him. Yeah. Where does that leave Catelyn? I, I don't know where that leaves Catelyn. Yeah, and that is her fear. Yeah. Right? <laughs> hmm And that is a, a fear that you've, we've seen historically uh, as well. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, more about knights, if that's okay. Okay. All right. So in this chapter, Rob's army has grown. Mm-hmm. And it's grown for a couple of reasons. It's grown because more lords have sort of flocked to him and brought their armies. Mm-hmm. But there's also a line that says, but then also, you know, a variety of hedge knights have glommed on to the army. Now, in my line of work, in my era of history, I, re- I can recognize that there is a difference between scribes and scribes mm-hmm. in a world that's, you know, mostly illiterate. A scribe could just be like, a secretary that allow you know that helps you write a letter, mm-hmm. or a scribe could be like a legal genius that advises a king. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that knights are a little bit like that too. Like you can have a knight who's revered, who you know, who's who who sort of advises at court, but the, the, there's also a lot of other sort of hodgepodge knights around. <laughs> around there are yeah so i wonder could you talk about the stratification of of sort of that role yeah. of knight? A, a lot of that stratification has to do with uh with social status and money okay. it takes it takes money to be a knight right so you know if you're from a, a family that's of the lower nobility or later in the middle ages if you were from a um a family you know bourgeois family that that was able to buy land and title then you could, you know, you could maybe become a knight, but you wouldn't be of the same status as a nobly born knight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Martin has this this word hedge knight, mm-hmm. and the idea is there here is is a pretty pretty poor knight who, you know, sort of trotting mm-hmm. up and down the road mm-hmm. and sleeping in the hedges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that. I don't know how yeah. I, should I be thinking about knights. In medieval France, this way, for instance, <laughs> well, you know, in times of, of warfare, you would have to recruit from you know farmlands, and you know you'd have to you'd ha- you'd need people on the battlefield, especially foot soldiers. There, uh-huh. there wouldn't be enough of the nobility, so you would have to recruit uh, in that way. But I think Martin's kind of romanticized view of the of the hedge knight is just that. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This this leads to my next question. All right. Should I be thinking about knights as policemen who govern the roads and look for ways to show honor in peacetime? 
who happened occasionally happened to be warriors, or should I think of knights as warriors who occasionally have to govern the peace when it's not wartime? The the former is more accurate. Okay, all right. So more, we're more like these are more like policemen who sometimes need to act as warriors. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And simply, also, they're members of the nobility, and the nobility uh-huh. has the power, and so they're able. You know, they're going to enforce. You know, the king's rules and such. That's helpful to me. In many ways, you know, you wonder, like, what do warriors do in peacetime? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, I mean, hopefully hopefully they're farming yeah. and doing other things right. besides... And the literary depictions aren't that helpful because, you know, that that's not the... That's not the fun part to read. So, <laughs> so there sure. are there aren't many depictions uh, in literature of knights at leisure. Okay. And when they are at leisure, they're jousting or they're playing chess, mm-hmm. wooing mm-hmm. Uh, wooing ladies. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Of course, wooing ladies they ought not to be wooing. <laughs> yes, yes. But it, it's interesting thinking of nice uh, Rob and and Jamie and um, and their different brands of uh, of of heroism in this okay. chapter also were very striking to me. Oh, tell me more. Well, so. Um, so Jamie gets captured, and uh, yeah, I um, I don't hate Jamie. It, in the novels, I think Jamie is on this tra- trajectory towards redemption that I don't know, you know, Martin uh, mm-hmm. might adhere to what happens to him in the series where things don't go so well. But I see Jamie on this kind of arc of improvement. And so, you know, at this point, he's not there yet. <laughs> but, no, no. But there are things about him that are um, – Dare I say that are admirable? He has his weaknesses. Well, yeah, even in this chapter, <laughs> even in this I chapter, think that he's portrayed as heroic. He's yeah. He, you know, you can't fault him for being as good as he is at what he does. And they acknowledge even though he that. was an enemy, right? He has right? the same uh, similar kind of flaw to Theon in that he's he's got a little bit of overconfidence. He's rash. They mm-hmm. know he's not going to be able to stay put. That if they, you know entice him that he will not uh he will not stay at the point of the seas that he'll come out and that's how they're able ultimately to entrap him is through that overconfidence Mm -hmm. but when he makes that last stand effort when it looks like you know he's surrounded he makes his last uh, ditch effort to get at rob um which is kind of the heroic thing to do if you want to take down this other um you know this this opposing force, and he's only captured because d- doesn't his sword get caught in somebody's head or neck when he? Yeah, he kind of makes a joke about it. He says, "I, you know, he he's kneeling before Cat, and he says, well, 'Well, I'd offer you my sword, but I misplaced it.'" And dare I say that I admire that he he's witty and brazen, even in captivity. Uh-huh. That's right, <laughs> and we find out later how he misplaced it. How did he lose it? Well, he lost it in the skull of one of your, you know, your young lords. Yeah, yeah. making, again, this this effort that almost reminds me of the last battle between, you know, Arthur and Mordred when it's down to the two of them. And, you know, Arthur mm-hmm. you know, gets his way across the battlefield, even though it's fatal to him, so that he can kill off Mordred once and for all. That It's, it's heroic because Jamie, you know, he's surrounded yeah. here, but he's going to make an effort. You know, and he also, he keeps that sense of humor probably not at all funny to Catelyn. When, um, when, doesn't he say, I mislaid your daughters as well when she asks? Yeah. Yeah, she's like, I don't want your sword. I want my I want my daughters. I want my husband. Yeah. 
Uh, he, yeah, I misplaced those two. Sorry. Yeah. Um, maybe a bit of a cruel humor there, but, um, yeah. but you know, they, um, they acknowledge this about him and I guess what, um, what makes Rob strategically so effective here is that he's listened to his uncle's advice about Jamie's, his weakness, his weakness is his strength. And that's that Mm -hmm. he's so filled with prowess that, um, he almost can't control it, Jamie. At the same time, I, I feel like I should mention, mm-hmm. he pushed a little boy out a window. I mean, he did. He's, he's <laughs> absolutely, he's, and in many ways, he just, he just has no scruples. He doesn't. You know, I, I, I can't defend him on that. His, uh, <laughs> his thoughts are the protection of his own family, but that is a, that yeah. is a child is inexcusable. So yeah, he's yeah. ruthless in a way that I think it is very hard to relate to, but there yeah, is yeah. a code there that he follows, whether, you know, we can reconcile it or not. He's, it's his own code. He it sort is. of has come up with his, his own ideas about what it means to, I, I've always thought of him as sort of viewing himself almost in artistic terms and in, in yeah. almost like I am a practitioner of the high art of swordplay mm-hmm. and I am going to throw everything I have into that. Yeah. That's sort of my highest end right. to do that, which is, I think, why he takes these men out mm-hmm. himself at any chance he gets, it's it's more of a chance for him to practice his craft. Right, yeah. And then once he loses that ability, that's when he really has to reinvent himself. Because that's all well, he yeah. was. That's, you know, that, that defined him. He was that. Yeah. Right. We're in contrast, yeah. if we look at, if we look at Rob, I think Rob um, has a very clear-cut code, a very clear-cut, even though he's not technically a knight, clear-cut chivalric code. But I mm-hmm. think he gets caught in it, too. It's interesting. He's. It feels like when Rob. Now we don't have an interior view to either Rob or Jamie. Right. Yeah. But I will say that oftentimes Rob will vocalize Ned's voice. Mm-hmm. He'll say things like, "Well, my my father has always said that the men." want to see you before the battle. Right. So maybe I should ride up and down the line. Yeah. Almost like Forrest Gump, Mama always said, only here it really is sound advice of his father. <laughs> I, oh, that's a great analogy. Yeah, no, he's always vocalizing Ned's voice. Mm-hmm. I don't hear that at all from Jamie. I don't ever hear him, hear him say, well, you know, you know, what would my dad do right. in this situation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he might think like, you know, what would... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Sir Arthur Dane do right. or yeah. know, some great swordsman that he admires. But and that's interesting because Tywin puts so much faith in Jamie. Uh, he believes that you know that Jamie mm-hmm. is going to to win this battle for him. He has no idea. He puts Jamie so much faith in Jamie mm-hmm. and so little faith in Tyrion. And Tyrion ends up, you know, actually being pretty good. Right, and Jamie, yeah, Jamie is captured. <laughs> Yeah, and Jamie's back. Yeah, yeah. But uh-huh. but Rob here, you know, in this um in this chapter we see Rob just kind of on the it's just I think a couple of chapters later where he's declared king of the north if I if I'm recalling right. And yeah. I think we really see him being set up for that. We don't get uh, into his head, but we see him, you know, um wanting to see his men first. 
uh, Catlin sees him moving among the men, offering them, you know, the words of comfort and, you know, consulting the map, you know, he, and, you know, that to see how to strategize and where to place mm-hmm. his men. And he's able to take, you know, good advice. Um, he takes his mother's advice. She's trying to, to straddle that boundary herself between being advisor and mommy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> sure. and, and listening to his uh, to his uncle's uh, advice as well. That that's the reason I think he doesn't listen to um, to Theon. Right. That, you know, it, that's and, right. But it's. I do think ultimately, though, that. Um, honor gets the best of his father where he you know you say he has he hears his father's voice honor gets the best of his father and i think honor gets the best of rob ultimately i was gonna say the exact opposite hmm. okay. all right let, let okay. me make my case and then i'll make mine okay <laughs> yeah i was gonna say ned dies dishonorably he ends up lying saying that he did betray the queen the, the king he conspired. Oh well, yeah, I'm gonna give you. And that, that yeah. and that Joffrey's the the true king. He mm-hmm. he dishonors himself and dies for right. it. Right. Rob dishonors himself by he can't keep his promise to Walder Frey. Yes. Marries Jane, mm-hmm. and that's not honorable either. And that's why he dies. So tell me what you're. Okay, thinking. yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Except I think that his decision to marry to marry Jane is honorable in his mind. I think he feels he's dishonoring her if he doesn't marry her. Interesting. Because he slept with her. <laughs> so uh, so he's got oh, interesting. so he's caught between oaths as well because he's caught between the oath that uh, that's made to Frey to marry the Frey daughter but he also uh, yeah he's you know he's he'll dishonor her if he uh, Jane if he doesn't marry Jane. So he's kind of in the same no-win situation as Jamie. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. So I see. Yeah, and maybe he chooses the um, the promise to Jane or the choice not to dishonor Jane over the uh, the choice to marry the Frey uh, daughter because he didn't uh-huh. really make that promise. His mother made that promise. Sure. But there are grave consequences. Well, I mean, okay. I do think, and maybe this is all um, moot, but mm-hmm. I do think that sometimes teenage boys will make decisions. Yeah. And then and try to convince themselves that it was the best decision after the fact. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's making the decision, you know, just based on his hormones, mm-hmm. and then his brain gets involved after the fact and think, yeah. well, actually, I, you know, actually, this isn't the worst decision I've yeah. ever made, and uh, <laughs> it'd be the honorable thing if I, mm-hmm. you know, if I did right by this woman. I, I just, I don't know if. I don't know if honor is what gets Ned killed, and I'm not sure that honor is what get gets Rob killed. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take back what I said on about Ned. I think you're right. He's faulted for his <laughs> honor by various characters yeah. throughout. But you're right. Uh, he's so honorable up until that very ending point, where then he does have to put his honor on the line. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to talk about another show difference. Okay. 
I imagine that because of your line of work, you you sort of enjoyed the show differently than most people mm-hmm. enjoyed the show. And I'm wondering, so I think for me, if someone like Daisy Mormont had been introduced in the first season, you know, female knight, and she was sort of played up, you could imagine the showrunners thinking, well, we need, we kind of need a female badass in this show. Mm-hmm. And here, Martin's written one. There she yeah. is right on the page. Let's Let's bring her into the story and give her... You know, a, a little bit of a bigger role, or at least show her on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. I think that that would have been delightful f- in my view. But I think my guess is that for someone who is well studied in the medieval world, that that might have actually you might have bumped on that a little bit. You know, because I'm I'm also so interested in medievalism and how how we bring uh, these stories into mm. current times. I I think I would have um, I would have been all right with that. Mm-hmm. I would have been really uh, I would have been really interested in how that worked out. Um, as I said, I've just taught this class on Beowulf and medievalism, and the the most recent um, novels that are kind of revisions of the Beowulf story feature Grendel's mother as the mm-hmm. protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have been interested for that way, but as, as a purist medievalist, um, as far as like, is this an accurate depiction of the Middle Ages and the kind of literature that you see? In that way, it would have been an anomaly. Yeah. And I do think by removing Daisy from the story, it almost allows a, a, a greater punch from Brienne later yeah, on. Yeah, I think he is saving it up for Brienne. I mean, it really does show her as sort of this mm-hmm. this aberration on the landscape, right? Yes, yeah. And then the um, the series also has the younger Mormont. Uh, is it a Mormont, the younger girl? Um, oh, yeah, Liana, Liana Mormont ends up being the heir of, Mor- mm-hmm. of Bear Island or something. Yeah, and she kind of has that same that spunk, right? Yes, that. <laughs> that's right. So maybe that you know maybe that's what they're doing instead. And, and in the in the final season, she mm-hmm. becomes a warrior. She know? does. So maybe maybe that's how they're working in this character. Exactly. But it's yeah. interesting because here, you know, some of the men are a bit disgruntled about her appearance, but she's just sort of casually thrown mm-hmm. into the mix. Yeah. yeah. In a way that I kind of that kind of liked. Yeah. Um, I was just going to note some introductions, uh, you, and you noted already the snow strikes. Um, we meet and say goodbye to Darren Hornwood. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Flint, we meet for the first time. And uh, departures, notable departures, Torin and Eddard Karstark are killed, along with Darren. And, of course, that sets up the, the discontent of Lord Karstark, which is going to be a problem for Rob later on. Right. And we've already talked about some show differences, but I, I, I will just note that I just rewatched the the single scene that's represented in Baylor uh, for the, the Battle of Whispering Woods. It really, you know, it shows Jamie's capture and it shows maybe, you know, two minutes of screen time. The entire battle is completely removed. and. Yeah. And so you you really just get the aftermath of Jamie's capture in the show. Yeah, which is it shows um, how the book is able to capture something that the show just can't. Uh, they could have had another massive mm-hmm. 
you know, battle scene. Um, mm. But since it's from the perspective of Catelyn, that the show just couldn't capture that uh, in the way that right. I think the book could. Okay, is there anything else that you noticed or wanted to mention about this chapter before we wrap this? And I think we're all we're you know, all set up here for um, for Rob to become the king of the north. Yeah, <laughs> set up to become the king of the north, and in many ways, this chapter gives us false hope. Yeah, because here we have you. You mentioned the chessboard before. Mm-hmm. Here we have we've captured really one of the most valuable pieces on the board. We have Jamie Lannister. You just imagine like, okay, we have leverage. We're gonna get Ned back. Yeah. Uh, of course, we know that um, that's not going to happen. So. Right. Yeah. And it will all come back to Catelyn and Catelyn's role as a mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Like, I don't know how much those conversations that were represented in, in between Lucas and, and Dustin and Mike are representative of actual conversations people have, but it certainly is representative of the thought process. Like sure. when Lucas is saying, um, "We don't have to be nerds anymore, right?" Right. Like, like I can, I can do this. Let me, let me infiltrate, and then that will, and that I can protect you. And that's folly, right? I mean, that's a, that's the folly of, of of that middle school to uh, high school transition is the idea that no, we can still make this work, even though we clearly have diverging mm-hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. And and they were like, there's still that. Oh, we could do the cake and eat it too thing, and it's just it's just not going to happen, right? So that that felt pretty authentic. And what I liked is that what they've done is, and I mean, granted, I mean, obviously we're living in Hawkins where there's monsters all the time, and these people, these kids, you know, give them credit for never really. I mean, only Max needs therapy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, they see a lot of death, like a bunch, and they save the world a bunch. And yet they still, what the Duffer brothers do is they get you right back into the high school politics. Like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, we, you you may be bonded yeah. by saving the world. But at the end of the day, it'd be nice to be a cool kid. Well, and again, and here we here we go. I think what we have here is sort of a, a part two of the Barb and Nance problem of season one, right? Because right, Nancy right. was about to break into the new friend group, the popularity group, the party group. And Barb was like, you, this is this is a bad idea. You're going to chase popularity. The, Steve Harrington's no good for you. And then Barb's left behind. And we know what happens to Barb, right? That's right. This is what happens if you don't join the cool. <laughs> you die. If you, if you, you die, you die you're inside. You're just not popular enough to live now. Right. Yeah, the world doesn't need you. <laughs> well, and the parallel here, we're not we're not really at eleven yet, but she's a total target yeah. for these Southern California Valley girls. My thanks to Carol, my thanks to Steve. Again, if you're interested in Stranger Things and you'd like to hear Steve and I talk about it, do a search for perfect Stranger Things wherever you search for podcasts. And that is all for this week.